For six of the last seven of my sermons with you, I've been looking at events and people that happened outside of the Bible, and that's a a long time for me to be away from the core of the gospel, so I thought that for the five Sundays I have available before Advent this year, I'd look at the ministry of Jesus, the core of the gospel. The common lectionary right now is in the Gospel of Mark, so this story from Mark chapter 4 about Jesus of Nazareth. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his friends, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. And a great gale arose, and the waves beat into the boat, and the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one day Jesus decides to preach a sermon at the water's edge on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But by this time in his preaching career, he is so popular that he's drawing Taylor Swift-like crowds And the crowds are so pushy that they're edging him back into the water where he's getting his holy feet wet. So he rents a nearby fishing boat and turns the prow of that boat into a pulpit. Maybe you've worshipped in a church where the pulpit is shaped like the prow of a boat. That happens on the coasts of America, Massachusetts and Florida. When I visited my in-laws in Fort Myers Beach, I used to worship at Chapel by the Sea in Fort Myers The pulpit was the prow of a boat. Famously, in Moby Dick, the revered Father Mapple climbs into his boat-shaped pulpit via a ship's ladder. And when he's safely ensconced there in the prow of his boat, he pulls the ship's ladder up with him so that he is unapproachable. You know why, of course, the main section of a Christian sanctuary is called a nave, right? Same word as navy. It's a boat, and this is the prow. This passage from Mark is the inspiration for that kind of ecclesiastical architecture. Anyway, when Jesus is finished with his sermon, he turns his pulpit back into a boat, and he says to his friends, let us go over to the other side. The other side, of course, is Gentile land, stranger land, alien land. Jesus means to take his good news to non-Jews. En route to the the other side, Jesus curls up and falls asleep on a cushion beneath the platform in the rear of the boat where the helmsman steers the boat from and instantly falls into a deep REM sleep. Now, I know preaching doesn't look that hard, but it actually is. And the better you are, the more exhausting it is. And Jesus is the best, so he is instantly out cold. And just then a minor typhoon gales up and roils the waters of that Galilean lake. 
Some of you have been there. It doesn't look like much, does it? Not even on a map. It's 13 miles long and 8 miles across, much smaller than many lakes in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and at an average depth of 84 feet, a lot shallower. Still, when conditions are just right, it can get a little dicey out there. The sailor disciples have to wake Jesus from his serene slumber. Rabbi, they plead, don't you care that we're drowning here? And so Jesus stands up and wipes the sleep from his eyes. And notice how Mark talks about this now. Jesus starts rebuking the wind. Jesus disses the principalities and powers. In your English Bibles, Jesus says, peace be still. But in Greek, it's more like shut up and sit down. That's an almost literal translation. It's a little vivid and a little rude. Shut up and sit down. He speaks to the winds and the waves exactly like he speaks in this gospel to a demon he wants to exercise. Because in the Hebrew theology, Jesus would have learned at his Sunday school, the sea was a symbol of the powers of chaos arrayed against God and God's kingdom. Huge, wild, unruly, unpredictable, uncontrollable. The sea stood as a cipher for the evil powers threatening God in God's good but unfinished creation, which still has little pockets of malevolence and chaos opposing God. Now, the Hebrews didn't quite give this sea principality a name like the Greeks, Poseidon, or the Romans, Neptune, or Melville, Moby Dick, but it was almost alive. It almost had intention and malevolence. And that's probably why Mark in his gospel calls this modest freshwater lake the Sea of Galilee to make it bigger and more menacing. Leaving behind for a moment the Edmund Fitzgerald at the bottom of Lake Superior, which is the exception that proves the rule, the word lake conjures up pictures of friendly family picnics and children in water wings, right? Placid, harmless waters flat enough to water ski on. But the sea, the sea conjures up the ancient mariner and Odysseus's shipwrecks and Aeneas's brushes with a fathomless grave, and Moby Dick and Captain Ahab, and George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg in The Perfect Storm. So Jesus addresses the sea almost as if it were a personified deity. Shut up, he yells at it. Jesus, yo mama's the weather. Yo mama wears army boots, says Jesus to the wind and the waves, or something like that. And instantly, they collapse down to a dead calm. Down drop the breeze, says Coleridge in the Ancient Mariner. Down drop the breeze, the sails drop down. No breath, no motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. And Mark's point, of course, is that Jesus shares power and substance and identity with the Creator God whose spirit brooded across the face of the deep at the beginning of time and shut in the sea with doors and said, Thus far shalt you come and no further. What we see in Jesus of Nazareth, says St. Mark, is not less than God, God's self. Well, so what, right? 
does it have to do with our lives? I'm glad you asked. This might be God's word for you in one of two different ways. I'll let you choose how God's speaking to you from this story today. Might be a word of comfort. Maybe your life feels a little like the wild, restless sea from the famous hymn we'll sing in just a moment. Maybe you feel tossed and swamped. Maybe you've lost your job or your health or your beloved. Maybe you're trying to reach a teenager who is lost in the dark forest of adolescence where the straight way is gone. You see, here's the thing about Jesus' serene slumber in the stern of that little skiff. You can see it in two ways. It might look like cool composure in the face of wild trouble, or it might look like uncaring indifference in the presence of genuine threat. Because Jesus sleeps through many of the things that keep us awake at night, right? Does it ever feel as if Jesus is sleeping through your vast trouble? That might look like calm composure or uncaring indifference, right? The thin line between cool and cold. Isn't it interesting we use that same temperature metaphor to talk about stoic and uncaring? Cool is a compliment. Cold is anything but. So don't you just hate it when you get all stressed out for good reason and no one will be a nervous wreck with you? Nobody will share your convulsions with you? It's so irritating. Jesus sleeps through your hurricanes. I hate to trivialize a noble Bible story, but this story might be Mark's way of saying, don't sweat the small stuff. And it's all small stuff. The troubles, the storms, the winds, the waves, even death itself, which is not just an end, but also a brand new beginning where all the seas are calm, all the breezes gentle, and where the sun is throwing glistening diamonds across the face of the deep. My friends Lou and Sharon were two of the happiest married people I ever knew. They met at my church in Connecticut at coffee hour after worship in the courtyard after Sharon's first visit to my church. She'd been raised a Pentecostalist in Seattle, but when you move to New England, you find there are no Pentecostalists in New England, so she thought she'd try the Presbyterians. They were way too boring for her and way too progressive, but it worked out. She fell in love on her first visit to my church, and she married Lou. Sharon was 52 when she first met and married Lou, and sometimes when you first find love in middle age, it feels like such a great grace. God's greatest gift to her in her life was her love for Lou. They were madly in love. They couldn't keep their hands off each other. Get a room, we'd say over and over again, even at church. They were married for 10 years, and then... Before he turned 60, Lou suffered from Alzheimer's disease and he died at the unfair age of 62. Earlier in his life, Lou had served three tours of duty in Vietnam and had earned the rank of Coast Guard Commander. And so at his funeral, we sang the Navy hymn. 
O Savior, whose almighty word, the wind and wave, submissive herd, who walked upon the foaming deep and calm amid its rage did sleep, O hear us when we pray to Thee for those in peril on the sea. Six months after Lou died, Sharon was still a wreck, of course. She was sad and she was lonely. And then one night, in the middle of the night, my wife sat up straight in bed and looked distressed. I said, you look like you've seen a ghost. She said, I did see a ghost. I said, you saw a ghost? She said, I just saw Lou Parker standing at the foot of our bed. I said, did he say anything? She said, yes. He said, tell Sharon I'm all right, and she will be too, and we'll be together again. When we reported this dream or vision or experience to Sharon, she was a little comforted and a little miffed. Why didn't he come to me in a dream, she said. Why you? We had no answer for that. By the way, Kathy wants me to know that this is the only time that's ever happened to her. She doesn't see dead people, <laughs> as a matter of course. Maybe that's God's word of comfort to you. Oh, hear us when we pray to thee for those in peril on the sea. Or maybe you need a word of challenge. Maybe your life right now is not a wild, restless sea, but a placid, sunny ocean on a beautiful day with a following breeze. And what you need is not comfort, but challenge. Let us go to the other side, says Jesus. What's on the other side? The unknown, the unfamiliar, the stranger, the alien, the unkosher, the unclean. Those who haven't heard the good news yet. Let us go to the other side, says Jesus to his friends. And look what happens instantly. The universe rears up in opposition to this crossing. The universe doesn't want Jesus to go to the other side. The universe likes homogeneity. The universe likes neat and tidy categories, Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, capitalist and communist. Not this polyglot, multi-hued, interfaith Selmagundi that Jesus wants to make out of all of these disparate ingredients. Isn't it great watching the Cubs in the postseason? First the Cards, now the Mets. Isn't it wonderful? All those mocha faces, all those Caribbean names, all those mahogany faces, those Harlem names, those South Side Chicago names, those South Central L.A. names, yes. And I got to thinking watching these teams how short a time that's been possible. The other day I watched one of my favorite movies of all time, 42, have you seen 42? About Branch Rickey's desire to have a black man in Major League Baseball. Branch Rickey, general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, University of Michigan Law School, class of 1911, by the way. Just the, worth the price of admission to see Harrison Ford play Branch Rickey. So he finds the perfect black ball player to break the color barrier, 1947. And you never knew what harrowing adventures would happen every time the Dodgers appeared as visitors in another National League city for the first time. You never knew what abuse the opposing players and fans would hurl at Jackie. 
When he came up in 1947, there were only two teams below the Mason-Dixon line, both in St. Louis, the Cards and the Browns. But Cincinnati and Washington were very close, almost on the Mason-Dixon. When the Dodgers visited Cincinnati for the first time with Jackie Robinson, the invective was especially obscene. Pee Wee Reese was shortstop for the Dodgers in 1947 and team captain. Pee Wee Reese was from Louisville, Kentucky, about 100 miles southwest of Cincinnati, which, of course, is on the northern bank of the Ohio River, the Mason-Dixon Line. Pee Wee Reese says that Jackie's was the first black hand he had ever shaken. So, on the first visit of the Dodgers to Cincinnati with Jackie Robinson, during pregame infield practice with curses and expletives raining down on Jackie from the stands, Pee Wee Reese walks over to first base from his shortstop position and starts chatting about absolutely nothing. And then he throws an arm around Jackie's shoulder and he says, Jack, I'm from Louisville, just down the road. My whole family is here, all my friends all my neighbors, everybody I know. Will you just let me stand here for a minute and chat? I want them to know who I am. How far is it from shortstop to first base? 100 feet? Maybe 120? Sometimes it feels like crossing an ocean. I want them to know who I am. In Brooklyn today, there is a bronze statue showing Pee Wee Reese with his arms slung around Jackie Robinson. When it was dedicated 10 years ago in 2005, Rachel Robinson and Dottie Reese were there for the dedication. Pee Wee and Jackie were long gone by then, playing catch ever since at shortstop and first base in whatever celestial stadium God's reserved for baseball's saints. Sometimes it's hard to cross over to the other side, but that's where Jesus wants us to go. Somebody here is trying to cross over to the other side. Maybe you're trying to cross that, gas, that chasm between you and some relative who has wounded you with cruel words. Or maybe you're trying to reach some distant and unapproachable teenager. Or maybe a refugee who needs a sponsor or a job or a new immigrant who doesn't speak the language. The universe might rear up to try to stop you, but Jesus will come along and say, shut up and sit down, and they will, because he is God. Rabbi, why are you sleeping, we ask him. He asks in turn, why are you afraid? And then we're chastened because just then we notice that with him in the boat with us all the time, we haven't gone under yet. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.